my name is Darius Mitchell. D. I'm the hip hop. I'm a I'm a republic. I'm the hip hop Republican. And honestly, the plan was is to do my military time, retire, and then grow into the woods, grow a beard, and get weird. Nobody goes out and says, "Hey, I want to go into the public light after doing everything that we've done in our lifetime." I am not looking to be president. In some ways, I'm looking for something better than president. I want to start a movement. I feel like crying because it's so beautiful that we can do this. It's totally amazing, is it not? I mean, I, come, I came here on the little community bus, paid my 50 cents. You know, like I'm going to the Walmarts or something. But no, I'm coming to this gorgeous, gorgeous state house with all the history in it. I could just cry for the wondrousness of it. I cry for the wondrousness of the Constitution. So, uh, you've been on this ballot before. Yes, sir. Well, uh, what, what, I, what I would like to ask you today is I want you to put me on the Libertarian Party primary oh. ballot, sir. But we don't have a Libertarian Party in New Hampshire. Legislature did that about 20 years ago. Ah, bastards! It's an outrage! How dare they! And stuff like that. There they were in the New Hampshire Secretary of State's office just before COVID, paying their $1,000 to be on the official presidential primary ballot. They are the lesser-known candidates, the dramatic fringe of each presidential primary election up here. And they are the stars of my quadrennial quixotic reporting project with photographer Shane Carpenter. And listen, they aren't like Pete Buttigieg lesser-known. They're like Berman Supreme lesser-known, Mary Maxwell lesser-known, Zoltan Istvan, lesser known. Almost nobody in politics or out knows these people, but they are running anyway. This is the fifth primary that Shane and I have spent ducking out of mainstream campaign press events to track down the people who are just obsessive, idealistic, or imbalanced enough to think they should run for president, often with no money, no support, and sometimes actually no platform. Of course, the idea of a non-politician becoming president was a lot funnier before 2016. But these candidates are something different, a wild bunch, far more entertaining and thought-provoking than the scripted candidates. And even though we are putting this episode out for free listening in June of 2021, far after the fringe candidates have returned to their day jobs, I'm still very into this conversation from this episode with candidate, writer, and transhumanist Zoltan Istvan. Zoltan and I drank some 15-year-old Dalwini scotch, and we talked about exoskeletons being escorted at gunpoint from a megachurch, and why he let someone jam a horse syringe into his hand to give him a permanent biochip implant. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. The primary is tomorrow. Zoltan, you have not allowed yourself a lot of time to campaign out here. Well, you know, this is my third time in New Hampshire, so I've already been campaigning here. But I think the reality is somebody who's so interested in transhumanism and who is really kind of a, a science and technology public figure, that it just doesn't work that well in New Hampshire. And I'm, I'm the first one to admit it. So you're coming to uh, the ancestral home of old school retail politics, uh, you know, where some sort of uh, maple syrup technology might be, you know, more close to the heart of the, uh, the soul of a New Hampshireite than, uh, than some of the things you're talking about on the West Coast. You think that doesn't really translate. This, this might not be your primary to contest in that way. No, I, I definitely think that's the case. Um, I have had a couple talks here they were attended sparsely, and but more importantly, the people just didn't resonate. They're just like, what are you talking about, brain implants and exoskeleton suits and things like that? If I did this in California, all of a sudden we have rallies, and people are excited, and people want to know what, what the newest Silicon Valley technologies are and what companies are doing it. You know, it's a very different feel, and I'll be on the ballot in California here in three weeks and on Super Tuesday, so if you would seen me there, you'd be like, oh, wow, he can actually put on rallies. 
it's really tough in New Hampshire in for me. New Hampshire, yeah. It's a small, uh, small crowd. I mean, we this is not our first rodeo either. We've been following people who are kind of outside of the media, uh, you know, off the debate stage, uh, so to speak, for a long time. And um, yeah, there's a certain way that it's done, and it's not. Uh, if you're not talking about things in the way that they're usually talked about, that can be challenging. But let's start right there. What is transhumanism? Well, transhumanism is a social movement now of many millions of people around the world that want to use science and technology to radically transform the human body and also transform the human experience. Anything from exoskeleton suits to brain implants to um, even driverless cars. But whatever it is, it's kind of the top 10% of the most radical technologies that are affecting the human race. You say there are many millions. Are, are these people who would actively knowingly define themselves as transhumanists, or you think it's just aligned with the way that they look at the world? I think there are now probably millions for sure that would say, if you ask them, are you a transhumanist, they would now say, yes, I am. When you ask them, is that what they consider themselves yet, that's a little bit more challenging of a question. But I think... Um, you know, Google, for example, is probably the most transhumanist of all the companies out there. And they have the largest what we call life extension company, a company of billions of dollars net worth, Calico, that wants to overcome aging. It's specifically designed to make people essentially live indefinitely. So we, we are getting to a point when you can now say millions and likely tens of millions who are supporters of the ideas, probably hundreds of millions, I would say. I mean, a place like China is probably leading the transhumanist movement in terms of innovation. Now they have the first designer baby, uh, babies and stuff like that. So there might be even many more. Well, hey, that's our signal that it's time to have another drink of this fine 15-year Dalwini. I feel like we should get sponsored if this is what we're going to do. <laughs> oh, um, that is good scotch. Show me an exoskeleton that will give you as much pleasure as a great bottle of 15-year scotch. I suppose that's a false choice. <laughs> you don't have to choose one or the other. Uh, okay, so you're saying China, uh, with its sort of uh, massive population and massive uh, commitment to technology, um, is, is at the leading edge of this. But they probably wouldn't describe themselves or know that they are part of this transhumanism? Or do you think the, the word is getting somewhere there too? I don't, I don't think in China the word has really gotten that far. But, you know, in terms of semantics, the word now is used regularly in the New York Times. Um, and it, it is really spread out a lot. But I think, you know, the word is just an umbrella term for many other ideas. Um, cryonics, uh, singulitarianism, um, you know, cyborgism, what is biohacking. The singularity? Yeah, so okay. singularity is, is the weirdest concept of transhumanists where, you know, they basically believe that AI will become so sophisticated that our human brains won't even be able to understand its sophistication. And at that point, we get left behind by another intelligence. Well, we were trying to update the updater on the Adobe Lightroom app, uh, and I felt like it wasn't quite the singularity, but you can you had a little glimmer of like <laughs> the things that are leaving my understanding behind. Uh, but the word itself, can you just break it down for me? It's transhuman. So like you're, what, like what what are the actual dynamics that are happening in the word? You're going across humanity. Well, the Latin would say it's beyond human. Okay, got it. So that's exactly it. It's like all of our limitations, our physical, our kind of chronological aging, mortality, those are the things that you're going to kind of uh, supersede through technology. Well, basically, yes. And nobody's really sure like exactly what transhumanism means in terms of what's the specific agenda. Is it when a primate picked up a rock and made an axe, you know, uh, 500,000 years ago or whatever it is, maybe millions of years ago? Or is it really, you know, like... A robot taking over a worker's job, which of course is increasingly happening, is that transhumanism? Or is it brain implants, you know, for Alzheimer's that help people overcome their diseases? Well, it, nobody really knows, but whatever it is, um, it radical science is is sort of changing the human species, and the 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 core of it is the microprocessor. It keeps evolving exponentially, and we even have things like quantum computing now happening, where you know that could revolutionize again the microprocessor. So. Anything that really applies to the human being in terms of merging us with machines is really a transhuman event. But, I mean, I have, I have very many questions for you, as, as I think I had said outside. One of them is, why do we need 
why do we need to put a label on this process that, as you just laid out, may have been going on for a very long time, is certainly happening without, you know, a, a need to sort of um, promote it necessarily. Google is doing its thing, regardless of whether, you know, you're out here, you know, kind of knocking on doors for tr the transhumanist party, right? Well, so the, I think the, the main reason we need labels is when you look at historical events, it's almost always a revolution about a certain idea, whether it's freedom or, you know, it's some kind of new vaccine or maybe it's environmentalism. We actually like to compare transhumanism to the environmental movement in terms of a social movement. You know, 25, 30 years ago, nobody knew what it meant to be green. And now that we're talking about a multi-billion person movement of environmentalism, well, transhumanism is just like that. You know, 10 years ago, it was still science fiction. And all of a sudden, in the last five years, the amount of money going into Silicon Valley to develop transhumanist technologies has just, you know, mushroomed out. It's just grown, you know, thousands of percent. And I think what the, the main point is, if you don't have a label, then you're not really sure what's happening. But a label helps us understand, and that, that label is transhumanism, of a social movement, of, of people culturally starting to accept that it's okay to upgrade the human body. But in real terms, what I like to do and why I push the word is because America's 75% religious. Most people believe in an afterlife. So when you talk about this science and technology, it's almost this adversary to kind of what's happening in terms of Judeo-Christian culture or thought. So I like transhumanism as a label because it's sort of like oh, there's this other side of the American psyche or culture. And that's why we need to label it with something. So people say, wait a sec, it's a movement. And this movement is after overcoming death. And to the Christian theology, that's kind of totally counterintuitive. But without a certain way of understanding it, our human brain in a semantical way, a label, it, it, it doesn't really take that same force. But that's where the label of transhumanism comes in. To sort of coalesce an idea that may be happening and just give it give it an identity, let people grapple with it and understand what's happening. Do you seek to influence this, you know, sort of evolution that is already ongoing for good or ill by, you know, having a transhumanism party, by trying to, you know, uh, be in some ways the face of this movement? Um, can that I mean, what, what effect will that have on transhumanism if well, it's already happening? Yeah, well, I think what's very important is that there are various versions of transhumanism. There are socialist transhumanists. There are libertarian transhumanists like myself. And um, there are transhumanist party transhumanists. Um, of course, I'm um, the founder of the transhumanist party, but I'm also now running as a Republican, but I've also run as a libertarian. I've said openly I might run as a Democrat in the future. For me, it's about the seed of transhumanism you can take it whichever political way you want. There's also Christian transhumanism. There's Buddhist transhumanists. So we want a worldwide movement. I want different factions. I want a decentralized idea of it. And I hope to influence it in terms of it grows and grows and grows. Because you have to understand, 80% of the world's population believes in an afterlife. The main goal of transhumanism is overcoming death with science and technology. So we have, we're sort of fighting 80% of the population. So it's very important that we kind of coalesce together as a movement that says we need to change that 80%. We need to change their mindset. And that's really where the cultural reform kind of comes in and why it's so important to have a huge movement like environmentalism, where the trajectory is like one day we also become a billion person movement that really wants to move beyond our kind of cultural heritage. So there you have it, the billion person transhumanism movement to come. You can see why Zoltan is one of those fringe candidates for president. He is just thinking way bigger than you might imagine is reasonable for him to do so. Let me introduce you, if I can, to a similarly big picture candidate, Mark Stewart, who is by day an SAT tutor from Connecticut, but by night has a very unusual get out the vote tactic. I have offered to voters, not journalists, yeah. to tout me, and I will pay you all of $2. Not that people can be bought for $2, but it's a little gratitude to say, you're touting somebody who doesn't get into polls. Yeah. So this is like my polling. And there are a couple people in Vermont who've taken it up. So <laughs> I'm going to tell people about you. So they have a $2 bill 
Stewart, who ran on a platform of reigning in the left wing of the Democratic Party, ended up with just 31 New Hampshire votes, but maybe thanks to those cheaply bought voter ambassadors, racked up 107 votes in the Vermont primary on Super Tuesday. With 57 votes, by the way, from New Hampshire, Zoltan Isfan brought up the rear of the GOP ballot, but has a lot more to say about transhumanism. So let's let's posit success and you reach those 80% and flip them into transhumanists. What what will what will that actually mean? Does that mean that they will vote for people who pour more resources into these kind of death-defying technologies or pass laws? I mean, what practically would having people be fired up about transhumanism do? Well, that, that's the best question, the great question. That's exactly what I'm trying to do. My main goal here with running for office and my main goal of spreading transhumanism is to get more money into the hands of the scientists who are making the movement happen. You have to understand right now, our United States Congress, all 535 members, our president, our vice president, all nine Supreme Court justices, they believe in an afterlife and they say they believe in God. So they, they have no real reason to pass laws to put money into the hands of the scientists who want to end aging and live indefinitely and upgrade ourselves to this kind of new bionic future. Now, the problem with that is in, if the entire government doesn't want to give money to it, it doesn't happen really. Only private industry does it. We need a, an American culture on board with transhumanism. And so I run for office in hopes to say, look, we're going to take, instead of like a giant military fighting war in Afghanistan and Iraq and all these, Iran and other places, we're going to take that money or a lot of it and put it into creating a science industrial complex in America that's dedicated to ending aging and upgrading the human being. It's a very different kind of way. I'm interested in Americans' healthcare, and not healthcare in terms of what system it is, but in terms of eliminating disease. And that's a very transhumanist idea that our president right now doesn't share whatsoever, a president who's cut the budget of the National Institute of Health, I want to mention. Yeah. This is, but you're running as a Republican. This is your, this is your opponent. You got to, you got to hit him hard on that. I do. It's my main message is that you know, I mean, honestly, Trump's done pretty good economically. I know maybe the working class doesn't feel it so much, but he does have the stock market at highs, and so it's kind of tough. But one thing he has done that hasn't been great is he hasn't, um, you know, he's not only cut the budget of the National Institute of Health, but he hasn't made a culture where science really thrives, and. China, it's thriving. China's our main, you know, kind of competitor at this point. So probably within five years, not only will China lead the world in AI and genetic editing, but they're going to be wealthier than us as a nation. And it's game over for America in terms of leadership. And who wants an authoritarian nation to be leading the world in, in science and technology? So this is where I really fault Trump. In fact, this is why I'm running. This is the singular reason I'm running, because ultimately I think that Trump has failed the most important part of America, which is its science and innovation part. Well, it's interesting you mentioned China and the sort of, I guess, the potentially darker versions of, uh, you know, sort of scientific uh, achievement or world leadership. I think if I look at a lot of the things that you're talking about and cryogenics and AI, it feels like particularly in the past few years, the the mood has really soured around those things. So people are more in touch, if anything, with the failure of big tech to, you know, be transparent, to actually improve lives. And a lot of this sort of what feels like a kind of uh, an almost false bill of goods that we've been sold. Um, how do you reckon at this particular moment with with the sort of bad PR that tech is getting, big tech, including Google, uh, about their intentions and motivations and their power to actually do good in a society? Well, I think, you know, one thing we've noticed is that all the biggest companies in the world now are basically tech companies. That's something that's happened and probably going to be around for, for a long time, maybe ever. And they have a bad rap, but I'd like to say that at least they've created an enormous amount of innovation that I find useful every day. Certainly, you know, as useful as oil companies or whatever other companies were thriving before. So I know a lot of people are upset. Okay, Facebook makes everybody crazy. So, so does social media. I mean, honestly, I'm not the biggest believer in these kind of social media things. I'm not sure if it actually is a mental disease using it too much, if that's what it might create. I, I really don't know. But I don't like what 
how people behave on it. And, um, but that said, I still think that the innovation that comes from it has been very worthwhile. And I think it's, it's important not to come kind of completely bash big tech for doing capitalistic endeavors. I mean, after all, they're not there for us. They're there to make money for their shareholders. And, you know, that's sort of the way capitalism works. So if you don't like Facebook, just get off it. So I, I don't really look at this perception that I need to bash big tech because they haven't played totally fair. I mean, they're after they're there after all to make money. It's it's an interesting question though because I think the mood of the moment feels, and this is very Trumpian. It's certainly connected to a lot of the Democratic. Uh, primary candidates, but it feels like this populism and this this sense of trying to plug into dissatisfaction about an unequal society. And when you talk about some of the things of transhumanism, like I imagine Peter Thiel trying to, you know, freeze his brain forever on a, or the, the, the tech elite who are trying to buy parts of New Zealand. So when the rest of the world burns, they have, you know, a nice mountain home or something. I mean, there's like this very, like, there's a potential for this technology that we've already seen to kind of exacerbate societal inequality and, and things that I think we all would agree, are, you know, that wouldn't be good. Um, how, do, how, how do you push the transhumanism while saying like, hey, we can do this in a way that's good for everybody and not just, you know, the eternal elite, <laughs> I guess. Well, I'm not one of the eternal elite at least not at this moment. So <laughs> I'm, I'm also with hey, you. I a don't, boy can dream. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, to see the 1% become gods and leave me behind. Um, that said, I think, uh, you know, first off, hi historically speaking, um, it, science and technology have a, a good track record of really raising the standard of living for everybody. If you look around the statistical, you know, analysis at the moment says, wow, the world's been improving for 30, 40 years. Mortality rates have been dropping. People are wealthier than ever, and they're you know have better jobs and that kind of thing. So, and and that a lot of that has come from science and technology. And so, historically speaking, it has improved the standard of living. I understand in our kind of zeitgeist at the moment, everyone's like, oh, Facebook and Google and you know blah blah blah. Yes, it does seem kind of you know brash on the kind of outside, but really on the inside, I would never want to take away what we've gotten from technology because it has made our lives so much simpler and functional and, and I think better. And so I, I think we just have to trust that big technology will take us down the proper path. And, you know, just as a politician, I would want to be, have a lot more congressional hearings on AI, on whether Facebook is maybe a disease or something like this, you know, or, or encourages disease. I want to do other things like that and make sure that there is some oversight. Against goes against my libertarian bias, but even I realize that there needs to be more oversight. But again, I just I question. People say, "Oh, big tech has hurt the world," and I'm like, "No, wait a sec. It's completely raised the standard again and again and again." And I think we need to take a step back and try to appreciate that while also balancing our worries and having some mechanism for trying to identify things that could could be better. Here with another Fringe Candidate introduction, Mosey Boyd. She's an Arkansas lawyer with a pretty mainstream and impressive resume who is passionate about women in politics and solving the opioid crisis, and most impressively seemed totally unfazed by the retail politicking of it, even at a busy ramen shop in downtown Manchester in the middle of the lunch rush. Thank you. I am running for president. I would be very grateful okay. if you would please consider voting for okay. me on Tuesday. She did not do great in New Hampshire, just 33 votes, but she got over 400 in her home state of Arkansas and more than 1,000 in California on Super Tuesday and has promised to stay in the race until the Democratic Convention. Back to Zoltan. I uh, am a graduate of Stanford University. I, in full disclosure, I've had, you know, many evenings, I think, where I just took a bunch of bong rips with the... Uh, smarter friends than I and had very similar conversations about, you know, the future of tech. And this is even even back in the 90s. It was something that we could all just kind of, uh, you know, hang out and kind of think about all of the different ramifications. It's a very different proposition to be a man getting on planes to be on a presidential ballot and run, not even to mention the bus tour and like, you're putting so much energy and like specific kind of activism behind this. How do you get from these kind of really interesting ideas to deciding that like 
something needs to be done, and damn it, I'm the guy who's going to do it. Well, you know, so just full disclosure, I, I don't, I'm not going to win. <laughs> you probably guessed that already. And you're, well, you're listening. <laughs> this episode is coming out after the primary, so we will have already known what what will happen. But uh, okay, this will make you very prescient, I guess, if it's true. So, but uh, you know, the reality is, I'm hoping maybe in eight or twelve years, I will do a lot better, and maybe even win office someday. Maybe not the White House, but. More importantly, like going back to 2016 and with Hillary and Trump, when you look, listen to the main debates, you don't hear anything about science and technology. And yet, you know this from being at Stanford, and nothing is changing our world really more than science and technology. So you would consider, you would at least think that that should be a highlight of the discussion that's out there. And yet nobody discusses AI. Nobody discusses genetic editing. Nobody discusses a lot of the ability to like cure cancer, let alone, you know, like... Um, just kind of keep band-aiding it like a lot of pharmaceutical companies are hoping to do for profits. Now, I, I don't want to get into conspiracy theory, but I, a transhumanist wants to eliminate all disease, and they want to eliminate suffering, and they want to use science and technology to do that. But nobody on the political spectrum is saying that whatsoever. So I'm doing it because I'm a journalist uh, by trade, and I also have a, a voice sort of as a, as a minor public figure. So I felt like obligated, you know, and I, I, I hopefully do a pretty good job. We, we get some press. We get people thinking about it. I'm not sure we're getting the attention of President Trump yet, but, um, you know. Oh, we're he's, definitely a, get- he's a listener. <laughs> you know, President Trump is a huge podcast head. Uh, no, or you, you'll have to go elsewhere to influence on, uh, on that high level, I think. But got it. All right. Well, let's talk about why you. Uh, let's start from the beginning. What, what is your background? How, how, uh, take, take me way back. Well, sure. Um, I, I, I would say my career really began um, after I graduated from Columbia University, and I went into journalism at National Geographic. Okay. And so for five years, I traveled around the world and uh, wrote something like 50 or 60 articles um, for their website and also was on their National Geographic Today news show doing a lot of documentary work. And so we kind of have this multimedia approach, and it was a great time in my life. I was in my 20s. I covered a lot of conflict zones, so saw some horrifying things. And what happened is I had a, um, it was in Vietnam, uh, just covering the demilitarized zone, naturally 20, 30 years after the war, and there's a, a bunch of uh, rice farmers that now dig up bombs that were dropped in Vietnam from Americans, but they're unexploded and they sell the metal. But to get there, you have to go through these landmine infested um, kind of jungles. And I almost stepped on one. It freaked me out because my guide kind of had to throw me out of the way and said, pointed to the ground and after covering war zones for a while, it kind of gets in your head, and not war zones, but also just conflict zones. And it was that moment in Vietnam when I said, you know, I'm going to stop being a journalist, and I'm going to do something to try to overcome death. And of course, transhumanism has been a, an ongoing movement since the 90s, and that's their primary job, their primary purpose, I would say, is to use science to overcome death. So I came home, joined the movement, wrote a novel. The novel did really well. It was called The Transhumanist Wager, became a bestseller. And it kind of launched my career as a public figure. And because I was a journalist, I began writing some of the very first transhumanist columns. I wrote one for Vice called Transhumanist Future. I wrote one for Psychology Today. I wrote uh, some for the Huffington Post. Now I do some articles for the New York Times. So I've had an an ability over six years to write over 230 opinion uh, essays for major media, um, almost cheerleading transhumanism. And up until that point, no one had ever been you know, optimistic about it. People have been kind of skeptical. And that literally came from a, from a near-death experience that you had? It did, but the near-death experience, has, you have to understand, it's kind of based on two or three years of covering other conflicts. I'd covered the Sri Lanka conflict. I covered the Kashmir conflict between Pakistan and India. I'd been, you know, I'd been doing some pretty harrowing stories. And um, it made me, I think it kind of got in my head I don't want to say it's PTSD stuff, but really it made me think, wow, what if we could overcome death? What would, you know, maybe we can, we can eliminate war, not by stopping war, just by stopping death. And, you know, this was a way, a new way of thinking. And when it hit me that I could do this, I realized that this is what I want to dedicate my life to. How did you go about, uh, outside of the media? I mean, tell me, tell me about some more of the, I guess the, uh, theatrical things that you've done to kind of get that transhumanism flag waved. Well, you know, basically I wrote my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, which did well, and that launched my, I I guess, as a public figure in the movement. But then, you know, it kind of plateaued, and I was wondering, well, what can I do to really get some attention? I had one big idea that sort of launched 
I guess my political career. In, um, in 2016, I was the nominee for the Transhumanist Party and we were running for president. And we, you know, we had a nice little group of people, but we needed a, a kind of a, an idea to put our, to define our campaign. And so we needed a bus and we thought, okay, what could the bus be? And a lot of people want to do a microscope, but you know, the bridges you go under and stuff would break it off. So we thought, okay, let's do a coffin. Let's do a 40 foot coffin that we drive across America and tell America this good news that transhumanists want to overcome death. And it's very possible through the, you know, science and technology. We just need to give scientists a lot more money. And so we outfitted a bus, made it look like a coffin called the immortality bus and drove it across country. And what we didn't expect was so much attention would be given. And all of a sudden journalists just started embedding themselves. I mean, I'm talking like the verge, the New York times. I mean, they Newsweek. All just- everybody wanted to be on board for a couple of days. It became a really fun road trip. And it took us four months. We were delivering a transhumanist bill of rights, which we posted a, upon the U.S. Capitol building. And, um, of course, the number one thing in the transhumanist bill of rights was we should declare aging a disease. That way, National Institute of Health funding could go to it and things like that. But it was really, we put on rallies all across the country. And a lot of people, and we went to think, we did things like we would go to the biggest mega church in Alabama with the bus where like there'd be these confrontations, we were escorted out at gunpoint and all these other things. Not, not that it was like nobody was doing, anybody was doing anything violent, but you know, it was almost like a protest candidacy. The thing though, was that we got a hundred million views and it was over a period of a few months, it was just, the attention was great. What did, but, the, what did they have a problem with in Alabama? I guess you can't. Uh... We, we went into a mega church uninvited and I don't know if you've been to a mega church, but they're like a college campus. And so, you know, at first, a preacher was showing us around. We were very polite, but we were also with a bunch of journalists, so they kind of knew what, didn't really know what was happening. And then they said, oh, a presidential candidate is here. But then somebody Googled the bus and said, oh, wait a sec, this is one of the very first atheist candidates that's ever been visible that's running. Because I, of course, ran on a platform of atheism, which I sort of am. And, um, and that, you know, like, oh, he, this guy's here to kind of, you know, either make fun of us. I wasn't there to make fun of them. I was there to actually explore what a megachurch looked like. I'd never been in one. Got it. So they, But they immediately, the atheist alarm, that silent bell that rings when, uh, when an, uh, a godless person uh, and walks you're, across the campus. Yeah, you're, you're in Alabama, and all of a sudden, a bunch of people uh, grab rifles from the office and guns and politely said, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you need to leave. Your escort has to go back to your bus and get off private property. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And of uh, course, we had all the journalists were there, and it was it was it was n- not a big issue. It was just it got a little bit intense because all the doors were on lockdown, and all of a sudden, like a bunch of like these were not police officers; these were you know church people who just kept were armed. Wow. Yeah. This is not a drill. There's an actual no. atheist on campus. Time to go. Um, <laughs> so that's a. I, I mean, I guess you would sort of you're unturning a lot of stones, and you're finding people's. Uh, varied reactions, I guess, to the idea of immortality might, might not be what you would expect. It. But, but it's, it's, it goes way beyond the atheism, because atheism is just like, oh, these guys don't believe in God. The problem with transhumanists is that they sort of want to become God-like. So it, it's actually blasphemy. And that's really where transhumanism becomes this, you know, it, it's one thing to just be an atheist. You're like, oh, he, he hasn't discovered Jesus is. It's another one to say, oh, he's going to make himself into the, try to make himself into a Jesus. And then it's like the clash becomes very, very serious. Well, it's true. There's only a few people who have really stepped across that mortal, immortal line, uh, according to most of the belief systems. And you can't, you can't fuck with that. Like uh, that's that's those are serious red lines, I guess, for a lot of uh, a lot of faiths. And really, we're kind of stuck in this death embrace with religion. And uh, you know, we need religion to make sense of death. And then death is such an integral part of religion and religious practices. You're going to get rid of death. You're really, uh, they're going to have to rewrite some of those texts. Well, it gets really bizarre too, because, you know, in my theory, we have this thing called quantum archaeology and quantum archaeology is this idea that you can 3D bioprint out DNA matter. And, you know, there are already about, there are probably 10 years from major hospitals around the world having the ability to 3D bioprint organs. Definitely, I'd say by the, the end of the century, we'll be able to print out humans in their entirety. So even through something like a DNA sample of Jesus's blood, you could be able to 3D bioprint out Jesus. Now, and, and then there's other weird ideas too. Quantum archaeology involves using AI to re-engineer parts of the universe. You might even be able to not necessarily go back in time, but understand if the universe is deterministic, that you could 
kind of go back and say, okay, this is what a person was like, you know, 100 years ago. So there are now entire fringe, not me necessarily, but fringe transhumanist groups that want to bring back every single living person that has ever lived through 3D bioprinting. And can you imagine what that means? Like you would bring back Jesus, you would bring back uh, Muhammad, you would bring back your great-grandfather. They think anyone who's ever died is a, a, a tragedy. Of course, we'd have 100 billion people on planet Earth and be overcrowded and all this other stuff. But the point is, like, transhumanist thinking is really very challenging from an, a, a theological point of view if you actually have the ability. And there, I want to point out, there are also some Christian transhumanists that say quantum archaeology is exactly the type of technology Jesus is going to use in his second coming, when he comes back. That's right. You're supposed to bring everybody back. Yes, yes. So then it gets really, and this is one of my main goals, is I'm no longer running as this, you know, I guess, hardcore atheist. I'm running much more as a person who's saying maybe there's a merger at some point in the future between the technology and the plan God has for us. I mean, I may not believe in God yet. I really don't know if I do or not. But the point is, maybe this is transhumanism is actually the will of a divine being. And so then it gets really weird because then, you know, the theologians are like, ah, and of course, I wrote an article for the New York Times recently talking about artificial wombs. And I was saying conservatives should support artificial wombs because instead of aborting, you could just have somebody take uh, their, the fetus and put in this artificial womb. And all of a sudden, now you can give life to this thing. Even if it's only 10 weeks old, they're, they're going to be using artificial wombs probably within the next 12 months for preemie babies. And all of a sudden, the conservatives get really crazy. The Vatican reached out to me because they were like, well, maybe we need to think about this. I mean, you know, it was in the Sunday Review of the New York Times, so it was a big article. But this is an idea of like how even conservatives can get behind transhumanist technology for preserving life. All right, meet our final side candidate, by far the most successful of the bunch in New Hampshire, actually. It's Mary Maxwell, who got almost 1,000 votes on the GOP ballot which is a lot in New Hampshire for an unknown candidate. She is a curious woman, incredibly soft-spoken and kind in person, with some very hard-edged theories about everything from who really committed 9-11 to modern-day federal overreach. The less government, the better. Certainly the less feds, the better. More about her and her improbable journey to things that are unlikely to be true in the Roads and Kingdoms feature. For now, back to Zoltan, and his very positive approach to big tech. You just seem like such a wild optimist. I, every single one of these things you're talking about, I'm like, but at heart, shitty people are going to be involved in this, and they're going to make it terrible. Like, isn't that what people do? Uh, I mean, I, it's hard to imagine the technology itself delivering people to a better place if shitty people are the ones who, you know, who we are. Well, no, and everyone criticizes, the first thing everyone tells me, especially, you know, most transhumanists are on the left, and even though if I'm a little bit on the right, uh, they are more on the left, and they say, well, great, Zoltan, you're going to make Trump live forever. And of course, we're already worried that Trump wants to, you know, be president forever. So, you know, I mean, that, that is a real concern, and let's just hope that democracy actually uh, survives and lasts. Um, but you're, but you, you have the optimism to say like, Hey, these things are changing and I don't know what the future is going to be, but I think it'll be pretty great if we can kind of get there technologically. I, I definitely think so. I think historically speaking that we all worry about the world ending. We all worry about the great depression and economically this and that and coronavirus and whatnot. But I think in the end of the day, like we always overcome those things. We generally overcome them with science and technology and we have a good history of doing that. It doesn't mean that we're, there aren't going to be some bodies along the way and there aren't going to be issues, but I think humanity is probably to be trusted. Does transhumanism have any rites or rituals or holidays? Does it, does it, does it look to have some, some totems of, of, of the belief? You know, it, because it's secular, most people treat it... Um, just like, I mean, there's a futurist day, I think in May sometime, and, but nothing's really that settled. It's a very decentralized movement because honestly, a lot of the life extension people are not interested in the robotics people because life extension people want to biologically live longer where the robotics people want to become machines and upload themselves or something like that. So even though it's both transhumanism and I like both groups, 
they don't really talk to each other. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and, you know, and then there's a lot of the other, you know, like the biohackers are mostly young tattooed people that are putting chips and I have a chip in my hand and stuff like that. And, you know, you, you do. Yeah, yeah. I have a tiny chip in my hand. It opens my front door, what? It, it starts a car, it sends a text message. I mean, you can do anything you want to. You have this right now? I have it right now. You can touch it. Yeah, it's right there. All right. This is the first. I'm going to touch. Yeah, it's just, if you push, you'll, see, you'll hear, feel a bump. It's a glass enclosed uh, microchip. Does that hurt when I press your chip? No, Does it's, it feel, it's it tiny. Feel? It's um, the size of a grain of rice. When you get these chip implants, you um, use a horse syringe, and you put the chip inside the horse syringe, and you just put it in. It's, it's, a pretty, it's kind of painful, but the chip itself is about the size of a grain of rice. But that I, wasn't sexual, what we just did. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a chip. <laughs> no, everyone likes to see it. And actually, it's, um, if I do it, like I hold the blood long enough, you'll see the, de- the defining point of it. You know, it's, How do you program this chip? Is this like an RFID thing? Yeah, yeah you can do it. Unfortunately, Apple has made it so that the, um, uh, the NFI, uh, NFC technology doesn't work with the Apple phones but it works with all Androids. Oh, and so if you have an Android float, you will actually be able to put it against my hand and then get my serial number. Of course, that freaks people out because who has a serial number? But if you can also put kind of medical information, so if you're unconscious and they find you, they can scan it. Wow. But in my case, really, I'm a surfer and a jogger. And um, basically, when you go surfing, you have to always hide your keys. And what a pain in the butt that is because then someone can steal it when you're surfing you know, and take your car or whatever. So... In my case, it's just great because all my keys are embedded into my hand. And you can even do things like hold Bitcoin on it. But you can't pay at Starbucks yet. Now, hopefully that the Visa card and MasterCards will come behind. You'll go to Starbucks and go bloop. And then you can pay with it soon enough. It's so, it's so fascinating to talk to you because I feel like most of the people that I know are actively now trying to kind of bunker themselves, you know, from exactly that kind of stuff that you seem to be rushing headlong toward. I mean, we're just having a conversation, Shane and I, about uh, Ancestry.com. And I was like, I would never fucking give them my DNA because some cousin of mine who committed a crime would immediately get arrested or whatever, you know. Uh, but and he I, I guess he felt differently about it. You're you're even more so. You're just like, bring it on. Like all of the knowledge, all of the data, like let's make it open. Let's get it out there. It's going to be fine. By the way, a quick transhumanist parenting aside, just after the interview, Zoltan mentioned to me something that might have been his most compelling argument, for me as a father at least. He said he had considered getting his daughter piano lessons, those things are fucking expensive, but decided that the real transhumanist approach would be to believe that people would soon enough just be able to upload piano skills into their brains like Neo in the Matrix and therefore piano lessons were unnecessary. I do believe that his wife overruled him, but still, I love that for me and my kids. Don't spend, don't stress, just wait for the uploadable skill sets to come. Okay, back to Zoltan. I know a lot of people are worried about their privacy, but I have a completely, like, I want the world to be able to see everything. I mean, I don't want the world necessarily see inside your house, but I want to walk outside and somebody recognize me for safety reasons. When my child walks to public school, I want her to always be visible. I want the phone tracking her. I want, I want to know if, if she's having a diabetic attack from she's not diabetic, but I want those kinds of things in us. And I want a world of complete transparency. Like, you know, most people think that privacy is this idea that protects you. But what privacy usually does is build walls, sort of like Trump building walls. If we have complete transparency between society as well as government, we'll have a lot more opportunity to be free. A lot more civil rights, I think, will be established because when everyone can see everyone else, they tend not to really bother that much. It's when we put up walls that people start to define themselves, say, oh, I'm this type of person and I don't like you because you're on the other side. So lowering walls has a tendency to make, ironically, a more libertarian-minded society because there's less walls to bother us. Yeah. I, I mean, again, I, I, I absolutely hear what you're saying and that you believe in it. But I just I keep thinking of like, you know, what if ICE gets a hold of this data? They want to just take, you know, they want to find every lawbreaker, you know, no matter what, you know, whatever the, the hot crime du jour is uh, and an overreact or, you know, just any kind of federal, um, you know, overreaction and giving them the tools to be able to get into uh, uh, to be able to do it completely. No, I agree. You know, my, my plan is so thorough that every little thing is covered. Like, for example, with ICE, 
I, I as a candidate, even though as a Republican, this is crazy, but I have a, basically an open immigration policy. In fact, for my theory is that in order to compete against China, which has almost, you know, going to soon have five times our population, has four times our population right now, we have to dramatically grow America. And because my policies don't really include many social services offered to people, I invite people to come in. And I think with a, a very defined facial recognition system around America, we would be able to make people much safer to stop mass shooting, stop terrorism and stuff like that in its tracks. But therefore, I invite people into our country freely. Um, but because I offer no social services, like you, you can't just come and be homeless. You, you know, nothing's going to happen. You're going to have to come and work. And so my plan is to like get rid of things like ICE, invite people all around the world to come back and make America, I mean, truly make America great, build new cities in the West and things like this. It's a very, you know, transhuman city. It's a very kind of grandiose plan. Yeah. But it doesn't, it, it really establishes liberties for people. It doesn't put up borders. However, everybody gets to see what everybody else is doing. So if you are a terrorist, you're going to be recognized almost immediately by AI systems and police and things like that. That's interesting. I can just see the potential for you pissing so many different kinds of people <laughs> off. It's really fantastic. I'm really enjoying well, it. Hence why not that many people in New Hampshire will be voting for me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, although, I mean, Lord knows if you had Bloomberg money to, you know, make an advertisement uh, saying exactly what you're saying now, you'd probably, you'd probably find the, your constituency uh, that needed to be out there. Um, well, let me ask you this. How old are you now? Um, I am 46 right now. Okay, you're 46. You and I are about the same age. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I've, I've grayed much more rapidly than you have. But, I mean, you have to have this, this question now uh, as... as people our age should, looking in the mirror, you're thinking, is it going to come in time? Like, will transhumanism arrive in time to save me? What do you, what, what's, what do you say to yourself in your gut there? Well, this is, you know, the most, I'd say, pressing issue and why I wrote the novel called The Transhumanist Wager. The Transhumanist Wager is this idea that we know that science and technology can overcome death. The question is, by what date will it do it? And will you still be alive? And if you think you're still going to be alive, then it makes most logical sense to dedicate all your energy and resources toward transhumanism so that you don't die. And th that's really what the transhumanist wager is about. Of course, it's compared to Pascal's wager, where you dedicate your resources to God to go to heaven, except the transhumanist wager, you dedicate your resources to science and research. Now, we're in this most amazing age, because if we can discover ways to overcome aging by, let's say, 2030 versus 2050... We will save 1 billion lives in that 20-year lifespan. I mean, no, no humanitarian effort like transhumanism has ever been undertaken before. We're talking about saving like hundreds and hundreds of millions of lives. But if you don't make it, you just miss that edge of, you know, because once you start learn how to reverse aging through either genetic therapies or the other ways are through bionic organs. I mean, most people die from organ failure and cardiovascular failure. So we have bionic hearts that transhumanists are working on, or even crazy stuff like uploading your consciousness. Okay, that one's probably, we're not sure if that's viable, but we're definitely sure that genetic editing and stem cell therapies and um, bionic organs can make us live dramatically longer. And maybe things like Alzheimer's can even be fixed with stem cell therapy and stuff like that. The point though is, the further we get down this path, 5, 10, 15 years, we get better and better at the science. There's going to be a point when we win, but if you can't make it the next 20 years, you'll never know. But wouldn't it be terrible for someone like me, ironic, you know, just I die out of old age, and then the five years later, somebody says, oh, here's the magic pill for all of us living indefinitely. That's a great worry. That is a great worry. I, one thing I guess we can say is it will not have come to pass without a a great deal of effort on your part <laughs> trying to avoid it, right? You're probably putting more skin in the game uh, than, than, than anyone else out there to uh, try to make sure that you beat the clock. Well, well, I am, and it's interesting because one of the big projects we're working on right now, we've had a documentary done and called Immortality or Bus, as well as a book's being done, but the, the Immortality Bus has also become the world's most well-known longevity project. And so we're in talks with a couple different major museums to try to dedicate the bus so that you'll have an exhibit, exhibit to go on and be on the bus and see videos of what it was like to be on this crazy, wacky tour. You know, because we had like um, biohacking lab on the bus. We had a, a four-foot robot on the bus. We had drones on the bus. We had all these virtual reality on the bus. It was a really fun tour. And of course, 
people were taking drugs, people were doing, I mean, you know, transhumanists are, of course, lovers of drugs and lovers of substances. They're always trying to alter themselves. So now you got my vote. It was, it was a very fun trip in terms of like, kind of like the 60s, uh, the, the, you know, the bus further and, and Ken Kesey going off. So we're hoping that, that uh, the immortality bus takes its place in, in the art world, like, um, sort of like that. And from the hindsight of the future in which transhumanist goals have been met, they can sort of see one of the one of the origin stories, one of the original mementos of the, we're of gonna, the movement. We're going to look back, I think, in 50 years and say, I can't believe that more people didn't dedicate time to living longer. Like, when we take not dying for granted, this great tragedy that most people are like, you know, don't want to go through. Okay, maybe most people accept death. But I think very few people actually are willing to go through the, the, the two or three day experience or even five minute experience of it. And I can't believe that more people don't dedicate energy to overcoming it. It just, um, we're, we've been cultured, we, we live in a deathless culture. We've been cultured to believe that we're going to be met by Jesus and, you know, f- f- a minute after we die and life's going to be great for eternity. I mean, this is to me insane. Did you say deathist? Is yeah, that the word? Death, that's the word. We live in a deathist culture. Yeah, well, that I definitely agree. All of this, like, uh, you know, next reward stuff uh, does does have a, uh, there's a moral hazard there. <laughs> you get too excited about what's next and you get a little less attached to what we ought to be thinking about. My goodness. All right. Well, we've reached nearly the end of our Dalwini. Um, here's to making it under the clock. Thanks for coming and talking with us. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And good luck in this uh, in this election. Thank you. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Many thanks to Josie Holtzman and Isaac Kestenbaum of Future Projects Media for help on the statehouse scene at the top of this episode, and to Ben Henry for grabbing sound from that unusual scene. Thank you, of course, to my comrade, my South Dakota man crush, Shane Carpenter. His photos from New Hampshire are incredible. You can find them on roadsandkingdoms.com. They are also the basis for all of our illustrations from New Hampshire for this show. He and his wife, Megan Carpenter, now run one of the great indie food businesses on the East Coast, a kombucha and kimchi paradise in Baltimore called Hex Ferments. Thank you, Shane, for ditching the koji for these odd days pre-COVID in the far north. Next week, we are getting out of America for the last of our pre-COVID episodes. We're going to Barcelona, European headquarters of Roads and Kingdoms, and home to another old comrade, Matt Goulding, as well as to other friends and family and more fantastic things to drink. We will meet you there.